Thank you, Stephen. Thank you, team. It is good to see you here today. Glad that you've come to worship with us. Hey, grab your Bibles, if you will. Let's go to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel 9 is where we're going to be this morning. Uh, We are beginning to wrap up our series on the book of Daniel. We've been looking at this all summer, uh, but I've only got two weeks left, including this week, and so we're going to skip chapter 8, and we're also going to have to skip 11 and 12, but hopefully we have enough tools at this point in our arsenal to be able to tackle these chapters. We'll be looking at chapters 9 this week and 10 next week. But we have learned a lot about, the, about how God is sovereign and steadfast in the middle of our chaos and change. Regardless of what you and I are wrestling with, God is always steadfast, sovereign, and supreme. And so even though we don't know the future fully, we get glimpses of it here in the book of Daniel, we ultimately know, even when we don't know all the details, our God is solid and steadfast, and this will never change. And this allows us to be secure and steadfast, even when the world around us is not. Daniel chapter 9 is we're going to be in verse 1 in just a moment. While you guys are turning there, uh, growing up, uh, my dad was always an amateur photographer. Uh, this was just a hobby that he always had. Uh, he just, he enjoyed it. Uh, whenever we would go different places, he would take a lot of pictures. He would take pictures at, at work and at our church. It just kind of became his thing. Everybody knew that, that he enjoyed photography. And so there were always cameras around the house of different kinds and, and shapes and sizes. And one of the things I always enjoyed seeing were all the different kinds of lenses that you could put on a camera. These are those old school uh, SLRs uh, that you would have. And so we would have an array of different lenses. And I was always fascinated with the telephoto lenses. You remember those? Uh, They were the longer lenses, but when you put a telephoto lens there on the front of a camera, it would take things that were incredibly way far off and would bring them incredibly close. He had one that was massive. It actually required a handle just to hold up the lens because it was, it actually was that, that, that long. So you had to have have an extra help just to have the lens on the camera. And obviously, technology has advanced over the years. We don't have those massive lenses anymore. They got smaller over time until now, right there in your pocket on your phone. You've got something that can do two or three times uh, of a zoom lens and even a digital zoom of up to almost like 10 or more uh, degrees you've got there that brings things that are super far away, way up close. But telephoto lenses do something uh, just fascinating. I want you to imagine for a second uh, a crowd shot, okay? I'm looking around at a crowd right now, but I want you to imagine a, a crowd shot of your own, right? Just any crowd that you might think of. You might think of this room or something else, but I want you to think about just kind of taking a picture of a crowd of people. And now, though, with your telephoto lens, I want you to zoom in on one person, all right? So pick one person in that crowd and just kind of zoom in on that one person, and now let's zoom in even farther with just a super telephoto lens and let's, let's kind of really zero in on maybe like a, like, like a little, you know, a, a brand name or just a, a decal on a, on a shirt or, or some particular feature there. I want you to zoom in uh, on that little thing there on somebody's shirt. Now here's the thing. Those are three completely different pictures, are they not? You've got a wide shot of just a bunch of different people. You've got a tight shot of just an individual person, like a portrait, and then you've got a detail shot of just something, one very particular uh, image or piece of a larger whole. These are very different pictures, and yet it's the same picture all at the same time. We haven't changed the composition at all. It's still the same group of people. Nobody has moved, but based on where we focus, it is a completely different picture. 
That is a little bit of what you and I have been seeing here towards the end of Daniel as we get these prophetic visions about the future. It is almost as if we start with Daniel and we start zoomed in on a particular person and a particular instance. And then what God does is, is he just zooms everything out to show you a grander perspective. To see this one particular detail, this one person, this one life, we see it now in the context of a much larger whole. And this is what God is doing through all of these visions. And he's going to do that again today as we begin into Daniel chapter 9, verse 1. So let's begin there in verse one and look at what it says. It says, in the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, I don't know how to say that, by descent Amid, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord, to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, 70 years. All right, let's stop right there. Realize that's a lot of names, That's a lot of stuff that we might just be tempted to kind of gloss over. But these couple verses here at the beginning position us at a very particular point in history. In fact, if you've been with us for a while now, and especially last year, some of these things might begin to make sense. You might be starting to put some of the pieces together. We are now out of the realm of the Babylonians, and we're now under the realm of Darius the Medes, and the Medes and the Persians have now come to power. So we're way towards the end of Daniel's life. Nebuchadnezzar is way gone. All the rest of the Babylonians are gone. We're now in this new phase. But it says here that he was reading in the book of Jeremiah the prophet about what was prophesied for Jerusalem. Go back to the very beginning of this study. We found out that Daniel was taken from his home by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. He was stolen from his home and taken into exile into Babylon. This had been decreed for hundreds of years. God had been warning his people, if you do not turn from your wicked ways, I will bring judgment on the entire city. I will level it. Nobody listened. And so finally, God takes some of the people into Babylon. Daniel comes in. He then takes more people from Israel and puts them in Babylon. Jerusalem's still standing. And and during that time, before the final wave comes in, where Nebuchadnezzar comes in in 586 BC and levels Jerusalem, destroys the temple, while there's still a group of Jews here and, and some that are still in Jerusalem, God speaks to Jeremiah the prophet and writes them a letter. It's a letter you might remember. It's Jeremiah 29, where he says this, I know the plans that I have for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. It's Jeremiah 29, 11. But in that same letter that Jeremiah sends, he also says this, it's gonna be 70 years before you come back. It's gonna be 70 years before you can come back and worship at the temple. Well, Daniel read that letter, it had been decades since it had come. He, he knows that letter. He, he treats it as scripture. This is the word of the Lord by the mouth of the prophet. But here's the interesting thing. The 70 years are almost up. You see, he's worked the numbers in his head. He's looking at this and he believes the prophecy of the Lord. And he says, wait a minute, the 70 years is almost up. Nebuchadnezzar is gone. Judgment came on them as well. And so here's the question that's rolling around in his brain. God, are you really gonna take us home? God, are you going to take us back? God, do you remember the promise that you made? You said in your word, 70 years. And so God, is it coming now? Do you remember your promise? Are you really going to take us back and rebuild? This is the question that is burning in his mind. 
But here's how Daniel's going to respond. When Daniel has this question in his mind, he's trying to find out, God, are you going to take us home? The first thing he's going to do is this. He's going to confess before the Lord. He is going to confess his sins before the Lord. Starting in verse three and moving down, he just starts this very long confession before the Lord. We're gonna look at that in just a second, but after his confession, and actually while he is still praying, God sends an answer by the angel Gabriel. He's gonna send an angel and say, listen, we have heard your prayer. God knows what you're asking for. He loves you, and so I'm gonna give you the answer that you're looking for. I'm gonna give you a vision of the future. But what Daniel gets is much more than what he bargained for. And so we're gonna look at what this vision is. So skip down now to verse 24. We're gonna come back to these other verses in a minute. But skip down to chapter nine, verse 24, and listen to what the the angel says to Daniel. Daniel 9, 24 says this, 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build, and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations, he shall, one shall come who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Amen. Everybody got it? Okay, good, wait. Okay, well, what in the world? All I asked was, are we going home? I just wanted to know if you were gonna do what you said. I just wanna know if we're going home, and now I got desolations and abominations and anointed and things and weeks and this crazy stuff. What in the world is going on here? You need to know that these three, four verses here at the end of Daniel 9 are some of the most poured over verses in all of Scripture, libraries of ink have been poured out trying to figure out what is going on in these four verses. Many people, when they read these verses, see glimpses of the end of time, and they may very well be right. And so people have been trying to figure this out. Okay, what does all this mean? If this tells us the future, how do we understand it? What is it actually telling us? This is prophecy. And so what is it telling us about the future? There are three main ways of understanding that, but before we get there, even let's let's kind of break down a couple terms. Look at verse 24. It says, 70 weeks are decreed about your people. Now, that word in the Hebrew is actually not weeks. It's just seven. It actually says 77s, which makes it even more enigmatic. And so people think this is actually not a day, seven days, but actually seven years, all right? So each week would actually be a seven-year time period. So 77s, 70 periods of seven years, would actually be 490 years. So this is a prophecy for half a millennium away. This is how many people have done that. But 
there's a problem because everything in Daniel is enigmatic. We've seen phrases like times, time, and half a time. We've seen weeks that aren't weeks. I mean, all of this is veiled in mystery on purpose. And so it's very hard to get down into very specific things. But three main interpretations about what is going on in this prophecy. The first is this. A little under 500 years from this time, there's gonna come a guy named Antiochus Epiphanes. He's a Greek ruler. He's gonna come into a rebuilt Jerusalem temple and he's gonna desecrate it. This, by the way, is, is something I mean, all Jews know about. This is where you get the revolt of the Maccabees. If you've ever seen those uh, books in the Apocrypha, Hanukkah comes out of that whole revolt. But it starts here with Antiochus Epiphanes, the villain who comes in and is going to desecrate the temple. People will look at him and say he is the abomination of desolation. And so a lot of people read this and say, oh, okay, the, the numbers kind of work. And if you squint with one eye and look at it, you can kind of see that the numbers would work and that must be the abomination of desolation and that's what he's talking about here. Okay, so there's one option. The second option says, no, 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 you gotta look a little further. Let's zoom out a little farther. So if we zoomed out a little bit to look at that, let's zoom out a little farther. This is really just talking about Jesus. He's the anointed one. He's the come in to atone for sin. He's gonna be the one to bring in full righteousness. And please remember that after Jesus dies and is resurrected in AD 70, that number comes up again, in AD 70, the new temple's going to be destroyed. The Romans are gonna destroy that temple. And so that's the abomination of desolation is that's when that temple is destroyed. Now that's way, not way more, but it's more than 500 years. So if you squint with the other eye and look at that, you can kind of make that one work too. Third major interpretation, people will say, no, 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 this is all in the future. This is all completely and totally in the future. None of this has really fully come to pass yet, but we're talking about the end end, okay? He's basically saying way off when God comes at the end, all of these things are gonna come to pass. And this is why people are trying to interpret everything in, in the news and current events, but they say none of this has fully happened. And then some people will say, let's mix and match the two. Maybe some of it happened, but we're actually in this last week, but the last week wasn't seven years. It's been more than 2,000 years, go figure. And so you can try to make that work and they just kind of twist them themselves and turn to try to make all the details work in one of these places. And there's more interpretations than that. You say, well, which is it? I don't know. Look, far be it from me, way smarter people than me have spent way more time than I had this week looking at all of this and coming to different conclusions we, we don't fully know. Here's what we can probably say. It's probably not option one, uh, and here's why. Uh, because Jesus himself talks about this in a future tense. Look at what happens here. Uh, this is in Matthew chapter 24, verses 15 and 16. So Jesus is speaking. Here's what he says. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Interesting. Jesus read the book of Daniel. Remember, that's where he got this whole son of man reference for himself. He understood all of this, and when he talks about the abomination of desolation, he says it's coming. So it can't just be the first one. It's gotta be either the second one or the third one or something else, but it can't simply be what happened in the second century BC with Antiochus Epiphanes. But here's another wrinkle to throw at him. What if it's all three? What if it's all of them? You see, this is something we sometimes see in Scripture where God doesn't just fulfill a prophecy once. Sometimes he fulfills it multiple times. 
The same prophecy he will fulfill in a greater way time and time again. Uh, Look at the person of Moses. God decreed that his people would be in slavery for almost 500 years. There's that number again. Okay, for almost 500 years. And then he would send a deliverer. And Moses is sent to deliver his people who were in literal slavery in Egypt. God sends Moses, and through a a working of his power, he finally brings them to a place where he says, you need to sacrifice a Passover lamb. And if I see the blood of that innocent lamb, I will pass over you, but bring judgment on the Egyptians. I will take my people through the waters of the Red Sea, and then I will guide them into a land of their own that they can have for their own, out of slavery and into the promised land. It was all foretold, and it all came to pass. And then comes the person of Jesus. Jesus, who comes to a humanity that is in spiritual slavery. He comes to us, and then he becomes the very Passover lamb. And by his own innocent blood, all the judgment will fall on him and not on us. And then he leads us through the waters of baptism into the promised land of eternal life that will not be taken away from us. Same prophecy, greater fulfillment. God's been doing this over and over again, What if it's all of these? These are just echoes. Daniel, yes, I'm going to help here in your time and in the second century BC and in the first century AD and in the 21st century AD, same prophecy, multiple fulfillments. So look, you don't have to know exactly what is going on here. You don't have to know every single detail of how it's going to work out. Instead, as you watch God zooming out at different points in history and as you see more of the picture come into view, here's what you and I can be assured of. Our God is sovereign and steadfast over all of human history. Over every single empire, over every single turn of events, our God has seen it all. He's in control over it all. And so, yes, Daniel, I'm going to bring your people back and rebuild. But this is so much bigger than just taking your people back. I'm going to be doing something for another few millennia. It started way before you. It'll go on beyond you. But I am firmly in control of everything. So don't get lost in the details. Don't try to figure out everything. Instead, see the answer to the prayer that God says, yes, Daniel, I haven't forgotten. I will help you. But what's interesting to me about this passage is not just this enigmatic enigmatic verses at the end of the chapter. It's how Daniel responds to it. You see, before he does anything, he starts with confession. Remember what we said? He doesn't simply ask his question of the Lord. He starts with confession. He's going to confess his sins before the Lord. Now, this is interesting. Daniel's been great, right? We've been walking with him all summer. He's amazing. No missteps. So it's interesting that the first thing he would find natural to do would be to confess before the Lord. And so let's read that now and see what he says. Go back up to verse three. Let's go back where we left off. Daniel chapter 9, verse 3, and listen to what he says. He says, Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy, with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God, and I made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled. Turning aside from your commandments and rules, we have not listened to your servants, the prophets who spoke in your name, to our kings, our priests, our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us, 
open shame as at this day to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, and all the lands to which you have driven them because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame. To our kings, our princes, our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven, there's not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done, and we've not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself, as at this day we have sinned and we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because for our sins and the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now, therefore, O oh, our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O oh Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O oh Lord, hear. O oh Lord, forgive Oh, Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake. Oh, my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. Now, that is a powerful prayer. It's heartfelt. It's sincere. It's specific. Daniel sits and he confesses on behalf not only of himself but of his entire people before the Lord. He doesn't walk up to this and saying, well, you know, God said 70 years and so, you know, we did the crime but we've also done the time so now it's time to go back, right, Jesus? We've clearly paid enough time for you to send us home. That's not his attitude. His attitude is we don't deserve to go home, period. We don't deserve anything and he is confessing his sins before the Lord and he's asking for mercy. Three things that he really brings out, three things that are important, important to, to confess. First off, the people have sinned greatly. The people have sinned greatly. Look back at verse five and notice what it says. He says, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets who spoke in your name, to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and to all the people of our land. Look at his first couple words in verse five. We have sinned and done wrong. Now that's interesting. Because Daniel hadn't done any of that. Daniel didn't do any of that. Remember, he got stolen away from his home when he was like 15. 
It was his fathers, his grandfathers. It was the people before who had refused to follow after the Lord. Daniel's been doing the opposite. Daniel has taken a stand for the Lord. He has held on to his faith. He has acted faithfully. So why would he say, we have sinned? Because Daniel understands something very important. He knows without a doubt that he is a part of God's people and that defines who he is. At the core of his being, he defines himself first and foremost as one of God's people. And this is the core of all that he is. So if his people have sinned and he is connected to his people, then we have sinned. This is his identity. He says, it doesn't matter if I have done this. We did this as a, as a people, which is why we as a people have been punished. Now look, this is very hard for us to get our hands around. Every culture has certain things that make it easier to walk with the Lord and every culture has things that we do that make it harder to follow the Lord. And this is one of the hard places for us as Americans because as Americans, we pride ourselves on one thing above all else. It is our individuality. We pride ourselves on it. We love our rugged individualism. We say this is the, the, the land of freedom. Everybody gets to do what they want. And so we think of ourselves primarily first as simply an individual. I get to do what I want to do. And so we don't think of ourselves in the, all of these other ways. Those kind of come on later, but I think of myself primarily as an individual. So if I sin, I will pay for the sin. But if I don't, then don't bring that to me. I think of myself as separate from everybody else, except that's not true. Because we're not separate from everybody else. And we're not separate from the Lord. We're not just an individual. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, here's what is true. We are a part of his kingdom first and foremost. If you have surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, he is not simply a, a, an ideology. He's not a morality. He's not a philosophy. He's not just a counselor. He's not just a friend to come alongside you. We call him King Jesus. He has a kingdom that he is bringing, which means we have bowed the knee to him and say, God, you are sovereign. You are Lord and we serve you. I am a part of your kingdom. I've been adopted into your family and that is gonna define me forever. In fact, it is the only thing that will truly define you for the rest of your eternity. Think about all the ways that we like to define ourselves, the, the, the things that we pride about ourselves, the things that, that help us understand ourselves, and ask yourself the question, what's the first thing you think of or the first way that you describe yourself when you're talking to other people? Because there's a lot of different ways we do that. We, we might do that simply by ourselves as an individual. You might do this by your family. You might do this by the way that you grew up or the family that you grew up in or the place that you grew up. You might think of your nation and say, I think of myself first and foremost as an American. You might think of yourself first and foremost by your political party. And say, no, 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 you can't just say American. You gotta go to my political party. You might think of your gender. You might think of your sexuality. You might think of your football team. And just say, well, that's on my first and foremost, what I think about. And we say, that's the core of who I am. And all these things are kind of part of who we are. But please understand this. None of those things define us. They are not the core of our being because none of those things will last forever. Did you know that? I hate to tell you this. Football's not gonna last forever. Ah! I know, it's painful. It's not gonna be there forever. You will not always be a fan of your team forever. You will not always be male or female forever. You will not always be married forever. You are not always gonna be an American forever. 
We're not going to be any of these things forever. There's one thing that you will be for the end of time. You will be a part of the kingdom of God. You're going to be his child. It is the one thing that will never change. Daniel understands this. He's been holding on to his identity through 80 years of captivity. He says, listen, you can put me in whatever world you want, but I am a part of God's people. We must identify first and foremost with who we are in him. It defines who we are more than anything else. Is that how we think about ourselves? Daniel recognizes that his people have sinned greatly. Here's the second thing. His people refuse to listen. His people refuse to listen. Look at verse 13. He says, as it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. He says, it gets worse. Not only did we sin greatly, Once all of this calamity came upon us and we got exiled to Babylon, we still didn't listen. We just got mad. We got mad because we were taken from our homes. We got mad because of all the calamities that happened. We got mad that God actually did what he had been warning he was gonna do for centuries. We never listened. And now I'm just mad. And I refuse to turn from my wicked ways. You ever done that? You ever find yourself taking a path that doesn't turn out how you think it is and instead of getting mad at some of the choices we made, we just get mad at God instead? You ever done that? How could you do this? How could you make me make these terrible choices? How could you let me do all of these terrible things and ruin my family or ruin my career or ruin these things? What have you done? And the Lord's sitting there going, seriously? I warned you forever. I have given you my word. I told you exactly what you do and you didn't do it. And this is my fault? Really? This is where God's people are. They, they had gotten exactly what God warned them to do and they just refused to listen. You see, this is why we can't define ourselves by anything else because if anything else is the core of your being, what'll happen is this. We'll demand that God come to us instead of the other way around. God, I'll come to you. I'll, I'll go to that church. I, I promise I'll even pray to you, but I'm not changing anything. God, God, I'll come to you, but, but don't ask me to change any of these things. These are core. These are, these are inviolate. These can't change. So, so you can help me with a couple of things, but, but don't expect me to change how I treat people or what I think about this or, or how I'm gonna do that because these have to stay. But, but, but why? Why is this going on? Do you see the problem there? We've made something else, the core of our being, and, and so now we can't actually receive the healing that we're asking for. This is like breaking your arm and not doing anything about it. I, I don't know if you've ever done this. Please don't do this. This happened. But imagine like, like you broke your arm, not like a terrible, like, like break, but like, like, a, like a hairline fracture, right? You've done something wrong and you've broken your arm. It hurts, right? You know it. You're like, ow, that is not normal. But you don't want to go to the doctor. No one wants to go to the doctor. It'll probably be fine, right? So you push through. You say, I don't need to go. It'll be fine. And so you do. It hurts a little bit, but it's fine. And so you never go to the doctor. You never have to go in and find out that something is wrong. But you know what happens if you break your arm and you don't get it checked out? It will reset, but it will reset poorly. And so here's what you get for the rest of your life. You get decreased ability and continual pain forever. You win! Well done! You showed them. Man, you pushed through. You never had to go to that doctor. You never had to admit that you hurt every now and then, and so now you get pain forever. Good job! This is not what we asked for. 
because we refuse to confess, because we don't want to confess, we end up heaping upon ourselves more pain. Look, no one likes to confess. I don't like to confess. No one likes to admit that they're wrong. No one likes to have to admit what I did was wrong, how I reacted was wrong, what I said was wrong. I need to stop and turn around. See, that's the essence of repentance, is I don't just admit I'm wrong. I turn around and I do something different. I go the opposite way. But if I do that, an amazing thing happens. God brings healing. He brings healing to us. He's not trying to rub our nose in it. He's trying to heal us. And this is what Daniel's worried about. He says, my people refuse to turn around and confess, but that's the only thing that would bring healing. And then here's the third thing. He said, it's not just them, it's me. It's not just them, it's me. Look at verse 20. We haven't looked at this yet, but look at verse 20. He says, while I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel. Look at that. This is not just a communal act. He's not just saying this for everybody else's benefit. He says, oh no, it's me too. Now again, that's interesting because we don't have any record of Daniel's missteps. Scripture is very honest. There's only a couple people in Scripture that we read about that we don't also read about their failures. We know about Moses' failures, Daniel or David's failures. I mean, we get the failures of the disciples, Paul. We get all of those. We don't really see those in Daniel. But Daniel is not immune for the need to confess. You see, when you have a life of faithfulness, different sins now begin to stalk you. Sins of pride, sins of self-righteousness. And Daniel is not immune to that. He says, whoa, 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 listen, it ain't just everybody else. Don't let me just throw all the weight on my my parents or my grandparents. Hey, it's me too. It's me too. I sin, I struggle, I don't get this right all the time. Many of you guys were here with us in the spring where we did a different sermon series called The Repenters. And all throughout that series, we looked at this concept of our flesh. All of us, every single one of us is struggling with our flesh. I am, you are, we are. There's not a person in this room who's immune. There's not a person in this world who's immune. We have a flesh, our very bodies that will push us, draw us towards lust and anger and greed and slothfulness and gluttony. It affects all of us in different ways, but it is going to draw us into iniquity to where we have to constantly be telling our own flesh, no, that's hard. And sometimes we don't. We just give into it, which means all of us, every person in this room in some way, shape, or form, no matter how old we are, have reason to confess before the Lord. Daniel understands that. And he says, look, it's not just them It's me. And so what does he do? Before he makes this ask of the Lord, before he says, God, what are you gonna do? Before he looks for answers, he starts with himself and says, God, I need to confess my sin before you. God, I need to confess my sins before you. And this is something we all need to be doing. Even though we're saved, this is not to get saved, this is not to stay saved. It's because we are saved, we ought always to be in a posture of confession before the Lord. There's a couple of verses that roll through my head uh, a ton. Uh, they just, they, they come up a lot and it's a scripture that you can use as well. It's Psalm 139 verses 23 and 24. It simply says this, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. It's just a general prayer. God, what am I missing? God, 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 what have I, I, I not confessed? Lord, is there, is there any grievous way in me? And 
Oftentimes, the Lord will say, yeah, we need to talk about how you reacted to that, or we need to talk about why you're doing that, or why you want this so much, or why you're not doing that. There's all kinds of things that the Lord will, come, will bring up if we just come to him and say, God, search me. Know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. Some translations will say anxious thoughts. Know my anxious thoughts. He knows us. And if we come to him in an attitude of confession, he can begin to bring healing. And so Daniel, before he ever asks his question about are we going home, he starts with a confession. And then look what happens in response. Verse 20. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, oh, Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out and I have come to tell it to you for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. This is incredible. Daniel has been praying for a while. He said he was fasting, and so this wasn't like a two-minute prayer. He's probably been talking, praying all day long, but here at the evening sacrifice, before he's even done praying, an angel is sent to him, literally flies to him, and in a vision is going to react to him. And here's basically what that angel just said. Here are the three things he is saying to Daniel. He says, Daniel, you are not forgotten. Your prayer has been heard, and you are greatly loved. You are not forgotten. I know what you're dealing with. Your prayer has been heard, and you are greatly loved. And that's why he gets this vision to talk to him, not just about what's gonna happen in his time, but in all of these zoomed out phases as well. Daniel, I'm not just, that's not just true for you. That's true for all of my people, which means this, it's true for you. There are three things that God would love for you to know. You are not forgotten. In whatever you're struggling with and whatever you're dealing with and whatever circumstance you find yourself with that you do not understand, you are not forgotten. Secondly, your prayers are heard. For the days where you don't think that anyone is listening, where that God listens to people like Daniel, but not to people like you. He says, your prayers have been heard. Why? Because of number three, you are greatly loved. You are greatly loved by the God of the universe. You might say, yeah, but how, how do you know that? Adam, you don't know me. You don't know what I'm dealing with. I haven't told you all the things that I have done. How can you possibly say that? I'm nothing like Daniel. Adam, I haven't been faithful for for a week, much less a a year, much less the the 80 years that, that Daniel has been faithful. I'm nothing like them. How can you possibly say, how can you know that that's how God feels about me? Because when God unzooms everything out, that's what he's saying to all of God's people. Let me show you this in Ephesians very quickly as we begin to wrap up. This is Ephesians chapter one, starting in verse three. This is a lot, but let it kind of wash over you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, this is us people, in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless in before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will 
to the praise of his glorious grace to which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Now look, I know that's a lot, but here's what God just did. God just zoomed all the way out. If we started right here with Daniel and we zoomed out a little bit to Antioch, it was a little bit more to Jesus and a little bit more to the 21st century, he has now zoomed all the way out to show us his plan. He says, I want you to see everything from the beginning of time to the end. I want you to see before the foundation of the world, before anything was made, even as I'm talking about the very end of time when I bring all things right, here's what you need to know. Before the universe existed, I loved you. Before anything ever existed, I knew your name and I made you and I knew you would sin and you'd be lost and you'd need a savior. So before the world was even born, Jesus Christ was slain before the foundation of the world. Why? Because we were so good? No, simply because of the riches of his mercy and grace that he lavishes upon us. This is not reserved for the Daniels of the world. It's not reserved for the Billy Grahams of the world. It is for anybody who puts their faith in Jesus Christ. He says, when you look at all of human history, from the beginning to the end, here's what you can know. I have not forgotten about you. I know exactly where you are. I know everything that's going to happen. Your prayers are being heard, and you are greatly, deeply, sacrificially loved, and you can look to that cross to be the proof every day of your life. You're greatly loved. And so look, you might not understand the times that you're living in. You might not understand why things are happening the way they're happening. You might not understand what's going on. You might not even live long enough to get all your questions answered. But never, never fail to believe this, that when you finally zoom out and see all of human history, you will see all of us on the same path. You will see Daniel in the same story as us. You will see Daniel, Adam, David, Moses, and everybody in between, us and those who will come after us. And above all of that, you will see the God who is in control of everything, who says there is salvation and there is eternal life in me. I love you. I haven't forgotten about you and your prayers are being heard. In light of that, how could we not confess? How could we not come before him? Not in cringing fear of judgment, but simply to say, you are holy and I wanna be holy like you. There's nothing in all this world worth more than you. Jesus, I don't have to understand but I need to tell you, I haven't done this right. Would you help me? Would you cleanse me and let him begin to heal you? You don't have to understand to receive a healing, but we all need to confess. So that's what we're gonna do even right now. So I'm gonna ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes and I'm gonna ask the worship team to come and join us. And we're gonna spend some time in prayer and confession. We're gonna sing a few different songs. And so you're gonna have an opportunity just to spend some time with the Lord. And look, there's lots of different opportunities for you to do that. I'm gonna be standing right down here up front. If you'd love just to have me pray over you, I'd be happy to. You're not required to confess to me. 
But if that would help you in your journey, I'd be happy to hear it. These altars are going to be open, and maybe you simply want to come and spend some time with the Lord. He says, what will people think of me? I'm hoping what we would all assume is that that's a brother and sister just like me who needs help just like me, and they're finding it at the feet of Jesus Christ. Or maybe you want to sit or stand where you're at, but we have an opportunity to respond. And to confess. And so as the Lord speaks to you, as the Holy Spirit speaks to you, let's respond that we might get healing from him. We may not get all the answers that we're looking for down to the finest detail, but you can know without a doubt that you are not forgotten, that your prayers are heard, and that you are greatly loved. Why would we not confess and surrender to the Lord in light of that? And so, Father, help us. Speak to us. Lord, uh, I can join in Daniel to say, it's, it's me. It's not just them, it's me. But it's not just me, it's all of us. Lord, we, we have not done everything right. Lord, we have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not always loved our neighbor as ourselves. We have not sought you and loved you with everything. Lord, there's things that we've done that we shouldn't and things we should have done that we didn't. And so, Lord, by your Holy Spirit, would you speak to all of us in this room even now? Keep our eyes away from all the other people we want to blame for things. And instead, Father, just could you let the the holy light of your love just illuminate us? And if there be any grievous way in us, would you help us to confess that you might lead us in the way everlasting? God, you're the only one who can heal us. Forgive us of our pride. Forgive us of our distractions. Forgive us when we fail to the flesh. God, we choose to say you are worthy and we love you more than anything. And so help us. We choose you. Hear us, Lord, as we worship. As the Lord leads you, you come forward, you come to this altar, you stand, you sit, you kneel, but let's respond and worship today. Let's do that right now.